Good morning. My name is Susanna Hobbs, and today we'll be reading from Matthew 12, verse 15 through 32. This is found on page 817 in your pew Bible. Matthew 12, verses 15 through 32. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is weighed laced, and no house or city or house divided against itself will stand. If, and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if... It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, neither in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Susanna. Uh, let's pray one more time. Father, uh, be with us as we head into this, this passage that is... Uh, Admittedly hard to understand. Uh, that can cause a lot of anxiety for those of us who have, have read it and, and have tried to discern what that means for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you just help us to look at this with eyes that remember who you are. That remember that you are a God that is merciful and gracious. That's faithful to his people. That watches over those that belong to him. And is also just and fair. Lord, I pray that as we get into this passage, I pray that you just bring comfort to those who need comfort, and I pray that you bring uh, the weight of the warning for those who need to hear that onto that uh, onto their shoulders as well. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, my name is Stephen Ellison. For those of you that don't know me, I am the minister to children and youth here at Hope Community Church, which means if you are interested in serving in kids ministry, I would love to talk to you. Or if you're interested in serving in youth or helping out with youth trips or uh, would just like to spend some time getting to know each other a little bit better, I would love to have those conversations with you. So please come and talk to me if we haven't had a chance to talk yet. I have been here for about four years now. It'll be four years in August that I've been at Hope Community Church, what used to be 
Leewood Baptist Church, and um, it's kind of interesting because that means I've been here not nearly as long as some of you, and a lot longer than a lot of other people here. Um, but what's really interesting is I remember when I was new, there was things that I would like learn about this place. And I can watch some of you like slowly start to learn some of those things too. And a lot has changed since I first came here, uh, but the building hasn't, right? So I remember walking in on my first Sunday and thinking, wow, this place is bigger than it looks like from the road. Does anybody else feel that? Um, or I, really, I think what hit me the most was, wow, this place is kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> Because you have to go upstairs to go to the sanctuary, and there's a lot of hallways that take right turns for no reason, even though it's one long straight building. And are there bathrooms? I don't know. Uh, so it's it's kind of a strange place. It's a blessing. It's a wonderful place to like to have, but it's kind of a strange place, and it's pretty obvious as soon as you get here on a Sunday morning with lots of people to notice that. Uh, but there's also like different ways to notice that. Uh, there's noticing that on a Sunday morning with lots of people, and you're like, oh, this place is kind of weird, and it's kind of big. And then there's like being here at 9 or 10 o'clock at night on a Tuesday by yourself, turning out all the lights after an event, and that changes the way you think about it, because now it's like kind of big and kind of weird, but it's like, oh, this place is kind of big and kind of weird. And if you've never had that opportunity to do that yet, um, let me tell you what might go through your mind as you stand in the part of the church with no cell service and no windows, uh, and the building makes its old, large building sounds. The first thought is, I'm a rational adult. I know this place is not haunted, and I know that serial killers do not sneak into church buildings to wait on the guy to turn out lights. I know this, right? Seven days a week. Seven days a week you ask me that question. I know the answer is that, right? That's just not how things work. However, there's something about being in the dark as the building makes its strange building sounds where it's not like you just like don't believe that anymore, but the part of your brain that thinks about that all of a sudden like goes into hiding. And the part of your brain that thinks like, how, can, how sure can you be that there's not a serial killer in the building. That part of your, your brain like comes out to play a little bit more. And uh, all of a sudden you forget the things that you were pretty confident about the entire time you've been in the building all day long, right? It just disappears. Uh, and I can't be the only one that's like experienced things like that, right? You remember being like eight years old, playing in the basement all day long. All of a sudden time, it was time to go to bed, turn out the lights. And you take that step up. You, you hop a little quicker up the stairs just in case, right? Or no, does anybody still not sleep with a foot hanging off the bed because you don't know what's underneath there, just in case, you know? Like, that's just something, right? It doesn't make any sense, but, and it goes against everything that we felt confident in before, um, but man, there's something about that mystery. There's something about the fear that comes in that place where we don't quite understand what's going on, or we don't quite know, or we can't quite see that settles on us and feels really heavy. It's not that we forget the things that we were confident in before. It's that the mystery of it all starts to play with our minds a little bit and cause some questions. I think something similar can happen to us as we read this passage. And listen, what I'm not saying is that, like, if you read this and, like, it strikes some fear in your heart, I'm not saying that's, like, a ridiculous fear, right? Actually, I don't think the Bible would present anything as more horrifying as the thought that we, are, we could be separated from God distant from his forgiveness. Man, I don't think there's anything more worthy of fear than that. 
But for those of us who are Christians who, who maybe read this passage, and I bet probably the largest percentage of people in this room are people who are believers, who are followers of Christ, who have read this passage and have felt some fear from it. For those of us who are believers, you've heard for your entire Christian walk, you've, you've heard this taught, you've read it, you've proclaimed it yourself, this one truth. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came and died on the cross to wipe clean my record of transgression against him. While my sin is great, his mercy is more. There is no record against me. My sin is tossed as far as the east is from the west. My sin does not overpower what he's done on the cross. He is merciful towards all of my sin. We know this. We proclaim it. We, we, we trust in it. But in the moment where we read this, it's not that we forget that or that we don't believe it. It's just that the part of our brain that just feels so, so focused on that, it, it just goes into hiding for a minute. And the part of our brain that emerges is this, is this thought of, of, have I done this? Have I done the unforgivable sin? Have I, have I said something or have I done something? What about that time in life when, when things were, were really hard and I was angry with God? Did I do this? Or what about when before I was a believer and, and I used to make fun of people who believed in spiritual things because I didn't believe in those things yet. Did I do this? What about that passing thought? What about that joke that went too far? What about, and we start to play with these scenarios in our head and we wonder, have I done something to put myself so far outside the will of God that I cannot receive mercy? Man, what a terrifying thought. Part of what I want to spend our time doing today is, is I, I want us to take time to remember the things that we proclaim boldly about Jesus about his mercy and his grace for sinners, about the power of what he's done for us on the cross, about the ability to wipe away all of our sins. I want to bring comfort to believers who struggle with this in fear. Because I'm going to tip my hand a little bit. I don't believe this is something that somebody who is an active follower of Jesus, though imperfectly but faithfully, can do. I don't believe this is something that is just a slip of the lips of somebody who actually loves God and is following him. I don't believe that this is something that you have done and now are trying to follow after Christ but won't be able because you've done this in your past. I don't think those are what this is. I believe this is a hardness of heart that goes way beyond that. So I want to bring comfort to those of you who feel a little fear there because I think many of us have felt that. But... I think something important in preaching and, and walking through texts like this is that, that we take the text exactly as it lies. And what that means also is taking the tone of the passage into account. What I mean by that is if a passage is meant to bring us encouragement in Christ, we teach it as an encouragement. But if a passage is meant to be a warning, we teach it faithfully as a warning. And I believe that this is certainly a warning. So as we, if, as we get into the context of, of who this is about, what's going on, um, I think the only faithful way to do this is just to walk through the text to see who Jesus is speaking to, see what led to this point, see what leads Jesus to proclaim this judgment, and hopefully will lead to that place of comfort for those who are in Christ and an awareness of our need for Jesus for those who have rejected him. So I think let's just dive into the text. So for the last few weeks, we've kind of bounced around. We've had some Mother's Day things going on. We spent some time talking about location. In the flow of our walk through the book of Matthew, though, we're in Matthew chapter 12. And Matthew chapter 12 starts off with these two passages uh, about the Sabbath. 
And in these places, Jesus is proclaiming his teaching about the Sabbath. Some of it's pretty radical, right? Very different than what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would have been proclaiming. Um, Nothing more radical than when Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, this isn't Jesus's first run in with the Pharisees. And this is the point where the Pharisees have had so, so much of their patience with Jesus run out where they no longer are, are willing to, to listen. They are no longer willing to hear. They're not asking who he really is. They've come to the conclusion they are opposed to him. And in verse 14, it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him of how to destroy him. That's their resolve, right? That's the resolve of the Pharisees in this moment. They're no longer listening, no longer hearing. They're done. Their conclusion about who Jesus is is made. Now is the time for them. They've decided to Get rid of him at all costs. That's where they're at in this moment. That leads us into verse 15 in our passage today where it says, Jesus, aware of this, aware of their decision to conspire against him, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him. And he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. But a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. As we get into this passage where we're ultimately going to come to this like conversation about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, um, it may be easy to kind of jump past this, but let's not, right? Let's not jump past this because it's going to show us a couple of important things. It's going to show us how Jesus responds to the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. And it's also going to show us of like this important fact of who Jesus is, who scripture has foretold that would be, he would be, who he is like, fulfill, like how he's fulfilling this in his character. It's going to paint us a picture of the one that proclaims this judgment. Understanding who Jesus is as he says this thing that is frightening is going to help us put this into context so much better to better understand Jesus's heart in this, right? So first, what, what does Jesus do after he learns that the Pharisees are, are planning to destroy him? What He, he withdraws. He goes to a quieter place of less public notice and continues a ministry of healing, of compassion, of looking after those with needs. And not only does he do that, he does that in a way where he tells people that he's healing not to say anything about him, right? So if we set this against this picture of the Pharisees who are hard-hearted, who are angry, who have murderous intentions in their heart, Jesus is like the polar opposite. In the face of their hatred, he's offering hope. And in the face of their murderous intentions, he goes out to heal. And in the face of their arrogance, he withdraws to a place of less notice. And he tells those he heals not to tell others about him. Why? Because it fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah here. Look at what this passage paints Jesus to be. Verse 18 says he is the servant of God, beloved by him who the Father is pleased with. Verse 19 says he does not quarrel or cry aloud. It says no one will hear his voice in the streets. It tells us again in verse 18, it says that God's spirit is upon him. 
that's, that's going to be big for the rest of this conversation, right? It's going to be big as we walk through this passage that the Spirit of God is alive and working in Jesus. It says that He's come to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Stop with the word justice for a second. He's come in fair judgment. He's come with full knowledge. He's come in goodness and righteousness. He is coming as a good judge and He's come to bring justice to the Gentiles. And it's easy to pass over a lot of those words, but for most of us in the room, that, that, that right there, that he's come to bring justice to the Gentiles, that he's come to bring hope to the Gentiles, that's the reason why we can have hope at all. This is a Savior who's come to offer salvation to a world of people who have not known it. This is who the Savior is, is one that's come to offer hope, salvation, truth, love. He's come to offer mercy that they didn't know existed as one that's just. It says a bruised reed he won't break and a smoldering wick he won't quench. Probably these reeds, right? Um, uh, shepherds would make these kind of musical instruments out of these reeds and they were really like fragile, really sensitive uh, and they would wear out really easily and get damaged really easily. And as soon as that happens, they were useless. They were worthless. No point for you know, their original purpose. And the same thing with a, with a uh, wick that's like barely burning, right? If your, your purpose in the ancient world is to have a candle to give light when it's dark, a barely burning candle doesn't do very good for that, right? These are things that are fragile. These are things that may be deemed worthless by others. These are things that are easily thrown away. And they represent people. They represent fragile people, broken people, people deemed useless or worthless by society, those in need of help. These are the ones that Jesus has come to save, not to crush, but to care for. All of this, all of this, all of this is still in this context of also this is the one who's come to fulfill the scriptures. That's the Savior that we're talking about here. That's who we're talking about in the rest of this passage. So let's keep going. Let's look at verse 22. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself, uh, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In this conversation, what's going on right here is Jesus leaves this place of, of, of his withdrawal as he leaves these more private places and he continues his healing ministry. He comes to a man that's possessed by, by a demon who's, who's blind and mute, who can't speak, and Jesus heals him, as we've seen him do many other times, right? Jesus does a work that is objectively good. He heals a man who is blind and cannot speak. He casts out a demon who is by, uh, from a man who is oppressed. He's doing a good thing, an objectively good thing. Uh, and when the people see this, the question that arises in their heart is, is 
could this be the son of David? Right? These people have heard the prophecies. They've heard these things read. And maybe they're a little bit confused because, because maybe they thought the son of David would be one that came with like a little bit more military like, like ambition. And that's not who Jesus is. But, but there's something about this. The son of David. Could this be the redeemer of Israel? Could this be the one that was promised by the prophets? Could this be the one that God is sending to save his people? There's something that looks like what the scriptures have pointed to here. Could this be him? And the Pharisees... <laughs> without missing a beat, want to squash this immediately, right? Immediately, they jump on the, the idea that, no, 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 no. It's not that he is the one that, that's, that we're waiting from from God. No, no, no. He's doing this by the power of Satan. He's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, Beelzebub is probably kind of a reference to like the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament God uh, of the Canaanites, Baal, um, Probably means like Baal the Exalted or, or Baal the Prince. Regardless of, of what exactly it kind of breaks down to be, it's kind of obvious that in the context, this is like another name for Satan. Uh, what the, the Pharisees are simply accusing of uh, Jesus of in like this quick statement is, uh, Jesus is possessed by the devil, uh, and Jesus is a practor, practicer of sorcery, uh, and sorcery carries like that weight of like the death penalty. Right? Like, this is a huge, huge thing to, like, accuse somebody of so, so quickly. Um, but notice what they don't accuse him of. Notice what they don't accuse Jesus of. They don't accuse Jesus' miracles of being fake. They don't accuse Jesus' miracles of being planned out or, or being lies or being, like, some kind of, like, magic show. No, that's not the accusation. They, that would be easiest to, like, say, and it would be easiest to prove it was the truth. But his miracles were so many, and there was, they, were, they were so obvious, and the people were so bought in that, that, that nobody would believe that. Like, it was a given that this had to be something supernatural. And if it's supernatural and they can't admit that it comes from God, then they think it must have come from Satan. You know, I don't think, I don't think the question of what is true ever popped into their minds. I don't think they were primarily worried about what was true about Jesus, about who he was, about who he claimed to be. I think more than caring about the truth of who he was, they wanted to be able to present something to people to convince them that he wasn't that, regardless of who he was. More worried about being right in God's eyes. They want to be right in the people's eyes. More, worried about, more than being worried about what is true, they were more worried about looking like the ones who hold truth. Have you ever, have you ever had like a debate with somebody where, man, maybe you start off with good intentions, maybe it's like a like lighthearted sports debate or, or you know, conversation with your spouse where it's like, you start off good, but before long, you just want to be right, right? And all of a sudden, you're like embellishing some details and like you're making up some stats that you don't quite know exist. And like, you don't mean to, but before you know it, right, it's not really about is your point right. It's about is the other, does the other person think I'm right? And I think we all drift into that a little bit uh, self-consciously. I, I think this is an example of this to like the 10th degree of hard-heartedness and rejection of who cares what's true what matters is what people think is true as I say it. And so they cast out this lie. This lie that Jesus looks at and says, what you're saying doesn't even make sense. Right? So he walks through this and, and, he, and he talks about how can a kingdom divided against itself stand? How, can, how does it make sense to assume that there's some kind of like satanic civil war happening here? 
When you look, when you look at what Jesus is doing, Jesus says, not even Satan and his kingdom fall to like this, this like folly of infighting in their kingdom. Like the idea is, is pretty obvious. Kingdoms with infighting, kingdoms divided against themselves, kingdoms that are, are, are just like, just wrecked with all of this division from the inside. They're kingdoms that fall apart. Even Satan knows that. Even Satan in his kingdom knows that. And, and why? Why would Satan then work against those who belong to him, those who are of his kingdom, those who are underneath him? It makes no sense. Jesus goes on to say, well, well if, if what I do is by Satan, then what, what about the people that follow you that also do exorcisms? That's what Jesus says. That it appears that there's people who follow the Pharisees who are doing this casting out of demons, but the Pharisees don't seem to condemn them. They don't seem to accuse them of the same thing. So Jesus says, your argument doesn't make any sense and it's not consistent. So what's left is if, man, it's obvious that this is done by supernatural power. You can't even argue that it's not. And if this can't be done by Satan, the only option left is that I do these things by the Spirit of God. And if that's true, then you have to admit that his kingdom is here. His kingdom with its king who is Christ. And this is something they simply cannot do. Think about it. Think about the Pharisees. Think about what they've seen. They have sat there and listened to Jesus' teaching. And they hated it so much that they wanted to kill him. They know the law and the prophets better than anyone. And they refuse to see the correlation between the fulfillment of these prophecies and Jesus. And they have seen these miracles worked by the Holy Spirit firsthand. And they would rather close their eyes and stop up their ears and tell lies about the Spirit of God than come close to accepting that Jesus is who he says he is. No one has had more evidence than them. The Holy Spirit has shown them time and time again through Christ, who he is. They see it in his word. They see it in the Old Testament. They see it in his actions and his miracles. They've seen it firsthand. They've experienced it, but it doesn't matter. They don't care about the truth. Their heart's hard to it. It doesn't matter the evidence. They will reject it. Jesus goes on to tell the story about the strong man and, 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 and says, nobody robs his own house, right? Nobody robs their own house. Jesus isn't come to work with the strong man. He hasn't come to work, to work with Satan. No, he's come to bind him up, to overpower him. Jesus has come to bind up Satan, to storm his kingdom, and to free all that's his, to take all that's his. And what's his is those who are enslaved under his power. Jesus hasn't come working with Satan. No, he's come overpowering, overcoming, and defeating Satan, assuring victory for his people. But they refuse to see this. And in the verse 30, I think verse 30 is huge. Verse 30 may not feel as shocking, and it may feel a little bit more familiar, but I think that this is the root that the rest of this is going to turn on, right? Verse 30 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality here. There's no middle ground between these two kingdoms of God and Satan. There's one or the other. You're either drawing near to Christ or you're 
flying away from him. Either you're gathering or you're scattering, fleeing, flying further away. You're drawing more near or you're running as far as you can away, actively getting more distant by the day. That's where the Pharisees are, scattering more and more distant every day, flying away further from belief, regardless of how much they see. Even in a, you know, soon in this, in this section of the scriptures, we'll see like this sign of Jonah where, where the people are demanding a sign so that they'll believe. They've seen more than anybody has ever seen in order to believe in Jesus, right? It's, Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah. If you ever read the story of Jonah, Jonah was not like the greatest prophet, right? Jonah was kind of a weak-willed guy who like flip-flopped through his ministry. And when he came and proclaimed to the, the people of Nineveh that they should repent, they did so immediately. They believed. But here are these people who have seen Jesus' miracles. They see the fulfillment of the scriptures. They hear his teaching and see that it's with authority. And they still demand more. The more they hear, the further they are from belief. They are scattering. Hmm. Verse 31 says, Therefore, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven of of people. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Uh, Let's break this down slowly, right? Just even start with the word therefore. All right, therefore. Everything that's being said here is tied back to the context that we've walked through. Therefore. Just to recap, therefore, they've, the Pharisees have seen more evidence than they ever needed just in order to believe in Jesus. They have ample evidence to believe because the Spirit's presented to them, and they have rejected it. Let's also recap that they would rather lie about the work of the Holy Spirit than even consider the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. And thirdly, Jesus says, if you are not with me, you are against me. If you are not gathering, you are scattering. Therefore, many sins and blasphemies will be forgiven to people, but... Blasphemy against the Spirit won't be. Blasphemy is is this idea of of slandering, of speaking against this name of God. Um, And, and, ooh, it's super easy to to jump past this. The passage says many, that, that all sorts of blasphemies will be forgiven. That's an incredible statement, first of all, that Jesus, uh, Jesus says, right? That's, that's an incredible, like, graciousness of God that we should sit in for a second, that all sorts of things like that can be forgiven. And we actually see this pretty frequently in the, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, for instance, if, even if you look at, like, Paul. Paul was somebody who, like, made his early career on oppressing Christians, on dashing those who believed in Jesus and in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, this is what Paul says. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy deserving of full, uh, full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Look at Peter. 
who spent three years following Jesus around, who had proclaimed Jesus to be exactly who he said he was, who admitted that this is the Son of God and denies him three times on the day of his death. Look even at, at, at the Jews who were listening to this, right? The, the people who are in the audience listening to Jesus and are still rejecting him. If you look back in the, like one chapter before in, in Matthew, as he talks about uh, John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist being somebody who the, the scriptures clearly say the Spirit of God was on him. It tells us that in Luke, right? Uh, this man who is empowered by the Spirit of God, it says that the people saw him coming, either eating or drinking, and they said he has a demon. That sounds pretty familiar, right? Somebody working in the Spirit of God now proclaimed to have a demon, and they rejected him. And then comes Jesus, who is, is both eating and drinking, and they reject him, saying that he is a glutton and a drunkard. They reject one for not eating and drinking. They reject another for eating and drinking. Again, here, here's, here's this... this this cycle of inconsistent arguments leading to belief that doesn't want to acknowledge the truth, proclaiming what is powered by the Spirit to be of demonic origin. There's the cycle. These people will go on. These are the same people who on the day that Jesus is, is crucified, they see him dying on the cross. Matthew tells us that they see dead rise from the tombs and walk around. They see darkness cover the land for hours. They feel the earth shake. They see the the curtain of the temple tear in two. Even Roman centurions declare, surely this must be the Son of God. And yet these are the people that still stand there and mock. And yet Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even in that moment, mercy and grace are still possible for them. Can you consider that? The people who had seen all of these things and still rejected him, even in that moment, Jesus says mercy and grace are not too far from them, that they could never receive it. You go to Acts 2, and, and the, the Holy Spirit fills the believers at Pentecost, right? And, and what do the people accuse them of? Of being drunk. And Peter says, no, no, this is actually the Holy Spirit working inside of them. This is coming about because of Jesus Christ, who you crucified, who God attested to through his acts that this is who he says he is. This is the reason all of this is happening. And the people are so cut to their core, they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized as a symbol of your faith and you will be saved. Even for all of those things, forgiveness was not too far. Grace was not too distant. The grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ are magnificent. And we even see it here as we're afraid of what might be coming later in the passage. He says all of these sorts of things still can be forgiven. God's mercy and his grace are attested to all through Scripture. This is the God that we worship, one who is forgiving and gentle, one who is merciful, one who accepts sinners who come in repentance. This is our God. This is the God that you worship. And this passage also clearly says that there is a blasphemy that's not going to be forgiven. Which is terrifying. So, so what is it when it says that there is this blasphemy against the spirit that will not be forgiven neither in this age or the age to come? I believe in the context of all of this, it's, it's this. It's, it's when somebody has seen all of the evidence they need brought about by the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus. To believe he is exactly who he says he is. And knowing the truth, they utterly reject it. 
reject it to the point where they will never repent. And they would rather tell a lie about who the Holy Spirit is than accept the truth of what they can plainly see. I think there's two things to this, right? There's this rejection of who Jesus is based on what the Holy Spirit has shown them. It's an utter and complete rejection. And it's a rejection of the Holy Spirit who is the one displaying this truth. Not only that, it's, it's a rejection that is it's one that somebody never repents from. This is not somebody who, who does these things in, in like ignorance or does these things for a little while and then repents. It's, it's not you. If, if you are somebody that's walking in repentance with Christ, it's, it's evidence that you, this is not you. These are people who are so hard-hearted that they never repent. They never turn to Christ. This comes from a heart that knows the truth fully and rejects it so strongly that never does repentance cross their mind. It's not a spur-of-the-moment thing. It's a lifelong, willful rejection to the point of death of who Jesus is based on the evidence that the Spirit has given them. It doesn't matter. It's a sin of, of arrogance. Jesus says these sins are a reflection of the heart, right? These words come from our heart. So it's not an accidental wording or a slip of the lips of the Christian who loves Christ and loves his spirit. These are the words of someone who has totally and utterly rejected Jesus despite seeing the truth. They still choose to call him a liar. They've obviously heard what's true. They understand what it means. They've seen the Holy Spirit work with their own eyes. They understand what is at stake and they still reject him. These are people who have more evidence than they could ever need to know that Jesus is God in the flesh. But they look back at God and they shake their heads. And it's not even that they say, God, nope, you've got to prove more to me. No, these are... This is a heart that deep down says, no matter what you show me, God, I will never believe. Blasphemy against the Spirit is is this hardness of heart that has a rejection of Jesus that is so final that it would rather lie about the Holy Spirit than accept the truth that's obvious to them that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And the reason why this is unforgivable is Because they've rejected their only path to salvation. Only through Jesus Christ are we forgiven of our sins and they have rejected him. Only through the spirit are we drawn to repentance and they have despised him. These people stood condemned because they rejected the fullest possible revelation and said it was not enough. I want us to see something about this, right? The sin of, of, of blasphemy against the Spirit is one of rejecting Jesus because you have called his Spirit a liar, ignoring all evidence given to him. What this means is this is not, a, a, something that you've, this is not a thing that you just have done once. There is, there's no sin that you've done once that is never, that's, that's unforgivable, but no sin is forgivable without repentance and belief in, belief in Jesus. It's only through Jesus that Grace and forgiveness are offered. Anybody willing to turn and repent and follow him, there is grace for you. Mercy, free. It's still there. It's still possible. It's for those who will never repent. Those who never repent 
that will never see forgiveness. Which is heavy. But I also want us to see that, that this looks a lot different than what most Christians worry about as they read this passage and are afraid. This hardness of heart that lasts an entire lifetime that sees no desire for repentance or belief, no desire to turn their life over to Christ, who stands against Christ, opposed to him, who says that Jesus Christ was a criminal deserving of death and would stand on the side of his enemies. That's a very different sin than I think most who are believers in the room are afraid of when they read this passage and they feel the weight of that on themselves. This is not an accidental wording. This is not something that you did in your past that now when you're walking with Christ, God will say, no, I know you want to follow me, but I'm not going to let you. That's not what this is. For those who want Jesus' mercy and grace and are willing to come to him, it's there for you. For those who are not willing to come to Christ, it is not. So God, guys, if if you are somebody that struggles as you read this passage and it fills you with fear, man, I get it. Let your heart take courage and understand that Jesus Christ offers salvation that is unmatched. Our sin is great, but his mercy is greater. There is nothing that matches his work on the cross. If you are following Christ in faithfulness, though imperfectly, you are free. You are forgiven. Where there is a repentant heart, there is a saved sinner because it is a sign of conversion. You belong to him. Take comfort in that. But like we said, this is a passage of warning. And it's a hard one. And with a heart filled with, with compassion, I, wanna, I just want to plead with those who are in danger here. The book of Hebrews talks about those who have sat among God's people and who have heard his word taught, and yet they walk away because they have rejected this. They walk away because they really didn't believe. I mean, if we're in a place where our heart is so hard, we, maybe we've sat in churches for years and have just never really called this ours. We just don't really believe. Maybe it's a point of emphasis where we don't even, it's not a question of is, is Jesus real? Is God real? It's, it's almost like his existence is irrelevant to us. It's a care of whether I want to even take that upon myself. If I want to be a part of this, if I care that he exists. For those who are drifting in a place where your heart is growing cold and distant towards God, let me, let me tell you, what, man, while there's still time, there's, there's grace. While, while we still walk this earth, while we, we, we still have, a desire to repent means that there is a place where we can go and find mercy and freedom. Don't let our hearts drift to a place where we are so hard towards the things of God that we no longer seek it at all. That's really, really dangerous. Our hearts are deceptive. We can never lose our salvation. But the Bible talks about those who will go out from us because they were never really of us and that we should be careful to make sure that this isn't us. There is mercy and grace for all who come to Christ, who all who seek his face, for all who want his grace, for all who love him and have a desire for him, who all, for all who listen to his spirit. There is forgiveness for you. Our God is merciful. And our God is just. 
And those who do not come to Christ for forgiveness will not receive a pardon for their sin and one day will have to face the judgment for that. That's the reality that Scripture paints. It's not one that we love to lord over people, but one that is reality and one that we plead with people to recognize as they head into dangerous waters of hardness. Our God is a God of mercy and our God is a God of grace. So if you're a believer and you're following after Jesus, though imperfectly and faithfully, and you have a repentant heart, this is not you. The scripture warns us to keep an eye out, but we can rest in assurance only because of him. He keeps us. He holds us. He looks after us. So we don't toy with these things. We don't, we, we don't deal with them lightly. But we can run in assurance towards the arms of Christ, knowing that his grace welcomes us near There's not fear in this for us, but there is a thankfulness for all that's been lifted off our shoulders. So we as as stumbling and tender conscious believers, we gather here um, by the magnificent mercy shown to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take communion as a reminder of this sacrifice that he has set us free from condemnation. This condemnation that we were once under and we've been offered something greater, which is life more abundant. Celebrating the forgiveness that's offered him him is why we take communion and we feast on this bread as his broken body for us and this juice as his blood spilled for our life. We take communion as believers, as those who have trusted in Christ. Otherwise, if you're not a believer, there are prayers on the back of the bulletin we would love for you to to read um, as, as we as believers take of this as a proclamation of what Jesus has done for us, for those who have believed in in this gospel that sets us free. we don't dismiss by rows, and, and we just ask you to come as, as you're ready. Um, sit in your seat and pray if you'd like. You can come down one of the two aisles and take a piece of bread from the basket, dip it in the cup as, as our, our um, people speak over you, these truths of Christ. There's a gluten-free station over here to my right and to your left, uh, and individual serving cups if that's more comfortable for you. Um, and you just come down the outside for that. So uh, as, as we go into this time, let's... Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the grace that's offered in you. Mercy, free and full. God, have our hearts run towards you for that offering, for that gift, for that that goodness. Lord, this is a hard passage. And and, and gosh, man, it does does hit us somewhere hard in the heart. But but remember, help, help us to remember the truths that we once wanted to forget. The truth that God is merciful. The truth that Jesus forgives sinners. The truth that he died on the cross to take my place. The death he died was for me. He rose from the grave, assuring the victory of those who are with him. That if we believe and follow him, we have salvation. God, remind us of these truths that we proclaim so that in the moments of fear, those things aren't drowned out. Lord, be with us in this time of communion. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.